This is the Pluck Chicken Podcast. Good morning, Pastor Kearns. We are back on our summer series today on the formula of Concord uh, that takes up all of these really interesting issues that people still uh, like to think about. And today uh, we are dealing with Article 2 in the epitome of the formula of Concord. And this one happens to be on the free will. It follows naturally on the heels of original sin. What I wanted to do is sort of jump and go straight for the jugular. What I'd love you to do is uh, read a couple of, uh, a series of statements on what Lutherans reject about uh, the teaching of the powers of the free will. And these are in the negative statements, the so-called negativa. Uh, What I'm interested in is two, three, and four. So if you would go ahead and just read those, we'll start talking about them afterwards. Yeah, sure. We also reject the error of the Pelagians. They taught that a person by his own powers, without the Holy Spirit's grace, can turn himself to God, believe the gospel, be obedient from the heart to God's law, and so merit the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Number three, we also reject the error of the semi-Pelagians. They teach that a person by his own powers can begin his conversion, but cannot complete it without the Holy Spirit's grace. And then number four, some have acknowledged that a person is too weak to begin his conversion by his free will before regeneration, and that he cannot turn himself to God by his own powers and be obedient to God from the heart. Yet, they still assert that if the Holy Spirit has made a beginning by the preaching of the word and has offered his grace in the word, then a person's will from its own natural powers can add something. A person's will, though little and feebly, can help and cooperate, qualify and prepare itself for grace, and so embrace and accept the word and believe the gospel. I would think that reading these statements uh, would probably send a lot of people in certainly in Baptist churches and therefore also in evangelical churches, uh, scurrying that these statements are just a little bit too steep uh, for them to to swallow. This is based upon their own experience and church practice, right? Sadly, their own blinded reason. Yeah, and what is their blinded reason telling them? Their blinded reason tells them that they have a full and free and capable will. This is where decision theology comes from, correct? Right. If I can just talk you into making a decision for Christ, then you can, what, utilize your free will and then make that decision by walking the aisle or signing the card or what have you. And so this is basically the way that the the, the modern American evangelical has conceptualized conversion, for lack of a better term, is to say that the analogy would be a, a vacuum cleaner salesman has shown up on your front stoop. You started off not interested in a vacuum cleaner, but he used a lot of uh, good words and demonstrated to you the the rationality of replacing your 25-year-old Hoover uh, that's spitting dust all over the place. And uh, he showed you how this thing vacuums up the floor really nicely. And by your own powers of deduction, then you said, you know what? Uh, it is worth $250 to buy this this new vacuum cleaner from the, from the salesman. Well, I think my mother bought her first Electrolux from exactly this sales pitch. <laughs> and if I recall, it was more than $250. <laughs> and that was a long time ago right <laughs> but it really is i mean it really does reduce the whole business of conversion 
down to this kind of uh, almost very American capitalist business transaction where faced with a persuasive argument, the person makes a rational decision to do or not to do the thing that they're being asked. And then on top of that, what you have in so many churches, as you and I have talked before, you have the classes and the books. You have all of the time spent on sharpening your sales pitch. You're saying in the seminaries. Or in the churches themselves where they are promoting how to win friends and influence people, especially for the gospel. I mean, if the driving motivator in so many churches is evangelism, then by all means, we've got to sharpen our pitches. Gotcha. And so it's really about the pitch. uh, And it's not, and and what's interesting about that is it's not taking into account the, the thing it's up against, right? A will that is utterly opposed to God and everything of God. I mean, people are following something when they get drawn in by these pitches. What I'm thinking is that it's not actually really the gospel. I would concur. I mean, a lot of evangelicals are taught that it's their testimony that draws somebody in, and that's not the gospel. Correct. It's the story of their life with Jesus. That That's very interesting. Which has actually been edited by them. Right, edited by them to make it look really as, as good as possible. Correct. To make it look virtuous, right? And this connects back to what we were talking about earlier, the virtuous person making the virtuous, virtuous decision. decision for the virtuous one. Right, yeah. yeah. So let's take a look at how they reject these various errors, right? So the Pelagians, um, and we had alluded to these folks last time, Pelagians teach that a person by his own powers without the Holy Spirit's grace can turn himself to God, believe the gospel, be obedient from the heart to God's law, and so merit the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Now, we played, actually, a pastor. I use that very, very loosely, but a pastor in a united... The UCC church, United Church of Christ. Right. Would you say that they of the UCC, even though he was denying original sin, which clearly if he denies original sin, then... He's got to espouse one having free will. Yeah, what could bind it possibly if there's no sin? Right. Right. So, I mean, is there a denomination, I guess my question is, is there a denomination that you know of off the top of your head that would go along with what we would call Pelagianism? Yes, the Unity Church. The Unity Church uh, is headquartered in Kansas City and really absolutely denies most of the cardinal teachings of Scripture, including original sin and the bondage of the will. Uh, It's a a club of the virtuous. But uh, when you talk about semi-Pelagian, man, oh man, could you not put Southern Baptists in that group? And then because all non-denominational church are really Southern Baptists, you could lump in all of the non-denoms in there as well as being semi-Pelagian? I would think so, and I, I was wondering uh, of trying to diagnose it a little bit further because we, we get this semi, semi-Pelagianism, but then we get a different version of something that sounds like semi-Pelagianism, but I'm, I'm wondering if this is closer to it. So let's, semi-Pelagianism teaches that a person by his own powers can begin his conversion but can't complete it without the Holy Spirit's grace. Is that still based upon the sales pitch? Right, it would be based upon the sales pitch. So it's still the virtuous person making the virtuous decision. 
and and then does the Holy Spirit enter it at that point? I don't know how the theology works, right? Where's, I don't think they do. They probably don't. But then there's this other version that's that's interesting. A person is too weak to begin his conversion by his free will before regeneration, and he cannot turn himself to God by his own powers and be obedient to God from the heart. Yet they still assert that if the Holy Spirit has made a beginning by the preaching of the word and has offered his grace in the word, then a person's will from its own natural powers can add something. A person's will, though little and feebly, can help and cooperate, qualify and prepare itself for grace. And so embrace and accept the word and believe the gospel. I've wondered if it modern evangelicalism isn't more in that one that I just read. So if we use the epitome to give labels here, it's not Pelagian, it's not semi-Pelagian, and even in this negative statement, it's not even labeled. Right, so the confessions don't actually label it, but I do wonder if they're talking about some of the enthusiasm, the enthusiastic sects of, of their period. So look, this is what the Lutheran Church rejects. Our argument is that this is actually what the Bible rejects. And so I think it would be very helpful for us to take a look at what the scriptures themselves say on this matter. Well, before we do that, is there any way that we could back up and just talk about free will, really the the logic behind it? If I'm not mistaken, this is something from Aristotle that has been brought in by really philosophy. I mean, it's not a it's not a biblical idea. Correct. This is ancient pagan philosophy recognizes a free will. The Stoics reject it, um, but most ancient pagan philosophy does countenance it and say a human being is fully in control of his faculties through his own will. I've had so many conversations, and I'm sure you have too, where I might be talking with somebody and the first thing out of their mouth is they're they're trying to get over here to point C, but they're going to begin it correctly by let's, let's talk about the things that we agree on. And they'll start out with A and they'll say, you know, Pastor Kearns, you, you believe that we have free will. Well, we've got to define that because I think you're defining it differently than the way I'm defining it. They're wanting to get down the road here, and you're not even letting them get out of the gate. Right. And that one actually does often start uh, a conversation with with evangelicals, right? At least we agree on this together. Uh, And I can remember many, many such conversations I've had over the years with evangelical friends about this. So maybe the best thing to do is really to define what we mean by a free will and a bound will. And to talk about, you know, how we experience our own will, that's a really interesting thing. I mean, in daily life, like this morning, I chose to hit the snooze button. I chose that. Nobody forced me to. My wife didn't force me to. God didn't force me to. But you didn't choose to shave. I did not choose to shave today. because Which I'm, was a choice. I'm shaving this evening. <laughs> <laughs> Your Wednesday night ritual. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> The shave comes after the lawn mowing, so I'm going to shave the lawn and then shave the face. You were just saying you you enact your will an untold number of times every day. Every day, every day. And what Lutherans are not saying in denying the free will, uh, we're not saying that we deny those acts of the will. And so a very helpful distinction for us to make at this point in time is to talk about the things that are below us, and the things that are above us. So the temporal, earthly things are the things that are below us. Right. So the Lord, right, when he created Adam and Eve, gave them dominion over all the earth. 
so where does our free will have its reign? Well, over on the earth. On the earth, over all of these things. I can choose to help the beggar out or not help the beggar out. Uh, we just know the list just goes on and on and on and on. And the Lutheran confessions actually make this point. In the Augsburg Confession, I'm going to just read a passage. This is uh, Article 18. It says, Our churches teach that a person's will has some freedom to choose civil righteousness. That's the stuff underneath us. And to do things subject to reason. So a person can actually do some very virtuous things by their free will. Run into a burning building to save someone. Right. Whether they're Christian or not. Correct. That's civil righteousness. It has no power, however, without the Holy Spirit to work the righteousness of God. That is spiritual righteousness. And then it goes on to explain. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2. This righteousness is worked in the heart when the Holy Spirit is received through the word. And we're going to get into that quite a bit later. And then there's a wonderful citation um, from uh, St. Augustine and, and where he talks about all of the virtuous, like the little teeny weeny virtuous things that people do all the time. They choose to get married. They choose to go plow their field. They choose to prune their vineyards. Um, these are little teensy weensy virtuous acts, but they are virtuous acts. And that's totally in our control. When we ascend above what's below us, however, that's where the will is bound. And that's what Lutherans are saying. So in regard to having a relationship with God, desiring to be righteous before him, what would be some other things that that you can't, it's a line that you cannot cross. I actually think that the human being in his will, in his natural will, can desire to have a righteous relationship with God. But that desire leads in two directions, and both of them are away from the righteousness of the gospel. Direction number one is for him to turn himself into a little Pharisee. He can think of all of his good works, and he can tick them off and list them off and say, you know, in his own head, this is why God is happy with me. That's the little Pharisee. But he's run away from God's righteousness in the gospel. And living in pride. And living in pride. The other way is to despair. So he desires this righteousness before God. He knows God has given him the Ten Commandments. He tries to follow the Ten Commandments, but he keeps on running up against uh, the Ninth and the Tenth Commandments. His covetous heart cannot stop coveting, and his lustful heart cannot stop lusting. And as soon as he realizes that, he realizes that this is a failure. So that desire is built in. Uh, and the reason it's built in is because the law of God is written on the heart of all human beings. And the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So he's looking for God. He's just not able to find him. And this is the point, that God is unfindable by the natural powers of the will. Yeah, he's running around on the interior of a grain silo looking for the door that says exit, and he cannot find it. And he's stuck. And that's why the breakthrough of the gospel is so, so critical. So we've, just, we've already said what we don't mean by a bound will. Right. When someone says that they have a free will, only God has a free will. This is part of his omnipotence. I guess the deception is, when we have free will over the earthly things, as you were saying, the deception is thinking that I have free will over the heavenly things as well. 
And this is where the Lutheran says, no, here's the line. You can't come this far. It's like, uh, you know, the passage this past Sunday with Lazarus and the rich man. There is a gulf fixed between the two of us. And so for somebody, though, to suggest that they have a free will, doesn't this lessen to a, a small degree or maybe a large degree the omnipotence of God? Because it places them in the same category as God. Yes. Well, it's, it, let's go on a little further. Isn't this the delusion that Adam and Eve bought into? You will be like God. Exactly. And this is why when somebody comes up with the free will argument or just, they don't even have an argument. They just have heard it at church or wherever and they just parrot it around. They don't really think about the ramifications, which this is what I found the epitome so incredible. I mean, you start with original sin. Well, what's the effect of original sin? My will is bound. Somebody's got to rescue me out of this silo because I cannot find the door. It's so amazing how the, the writers, even though if I'm not mistaken, maybe give me a little history lesson here. Melanchthon was all about this as well, and that he started when it came to his uh, Losi. So, so what you're saying is that Melanchthon fell off the wagon on this one. Eventually. Yes, he did. So he began as a regular Lutheran, uh, and we see that in the Augsburg Confession. In the Variata of the Augsburg Confession, he's already changed his mind. This is by 1536. And the reason really was he was looking for ways to find agreement with other groups. So the other Christian denominations that were developing at this point in time were putting pressure on the Lutherans not to be such sticks in the mud about this teaching of Scripture. And so Melanchthon was, in fact, he, over a series of years, made a number of different formulations trying to please both the Lutheran mind as well as, you know, whatever other mind was out there. And so he was a synergist, at least in his outward confession. Which is unfortunate. So if one suggests they have a free will of not only the things temporal and below, but also the things eternal and above, we're making the argument that they're, they're put now on the same par as God who is omnipotent. And as a result, could you even say that God now owes me something? Like I have a free will, you have a free will. So, I don't so, know, there's so, almost like a bartering. Yeah, or, so we're on, we're on parity with each other. And so... So it is, it is within my wheelhouse or um, capability to strike a deal with you. How, how many um, conversions, you know, and I'm putting those in scare quotes, are made like that? God, I'll believe in Jesus if you'll just, as if you can make God play uncle. And you can't. So let's take a look, you said, at the uh, scriptural passages for this doctrine. Very good. So the first one to, to look at, and the, the Lutheran confessions circle back to this one very often, is 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So Paul there is talking about two kinds of people, right? The natural man, the, the physikos anthropos, and the, um, the spiritual one. And the spiritual one is the, the one who has been converted uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit. His statement here is, is ex it's an exclusive statement. He doesn't say there's like a range of being a natural man. It's just natural men and spiritual men. That's it. There's one or the other, and ne'er the twain shall meet. This is the great gulf that was separated, uh, that separates us. 
the delusion, though, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that the, one of the great capabilities of the natural man is his ability to delude himself? Totally. But, but again, this goes back to original sin and how heinous and darkened really our, our reason, our fallen reason, really is. And the, the very delusion, its capability of deluding itself, is the mark of its fallenness that it can convince itself that it does have these powers above its own capability. Uh, but this is a, a really exclusive statement. There is, what this means is that there is no sales pitch. There is no argument. There is no winsomeness. Right, whatever operation there is that can reach the natural man because the natural man just does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. In Topeka, we have the famed Westboro Baptist Church that on occasion make their way to St. John's Lutheran Church. And I believe it's just because, you know, the Catholic Church is right around the block here. So it's kind of like two birds with one stone. Yeah. Yeah. So they hit the Catholics first. And then they walk around the block and they hit us. You know, there's a sign that they carry that says free will is a heresy. That's totally correct. Now, say what you want about the Westboro (laughs) Baptist Church, but they have got that one nailed. And, of course, I always want to go out and say, hey, we're with you there. Exactly. I would assume that they probably picket a lot of semi-Pelagian or this uh, unlabeled negative statement here in the epitome. And seeing a sign like that, free will is a heresy, is probably offensive to a lot of Christians. Uh, Certainly to the Catholics. So that's a very helpful sign for our Catholic neighbors. Certainly it would be uh, heresy to, you know, the big mega church that we've got here in town. But they're spot on. Unfortunately, the ones carrying the banner in the public on this are... Westboro Baptist yeah, Church. Yeah. Well, there's another verse, or there's many other verses. I'm sure you're going to get to them, but one that's uh, just on off the top of my head, and you can tell me the reference, but it's the one that says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Maybe evangelicals are so used to reading so quickly through their Bible that they don't, they don't stop to actually smell the roses, so to speak, or think about that. No one can claim Christ as Lord unless the Holy Spirit, not the winsome argument, not the dramatic testimony, not the, uh, as we talked before, the, the sharp, penetrating sales pitch. No one can do this unless the Holy Spirit is the one that moves first. Right. And that gets to the nature of the will, really. Um, a will wills what a will wills. So by definition, a will that is wicked can't do anything but will what is wicked. Correct. So will wills what a will wills. So in the fallenness of our human nature, if all of our powers have been infected by sin, including our will, and, and the Lutherans would say it's, it's especially our will that has been affected. The, the first sin was not biting the apple. It was choosing to sin. And now that choice to sin has become embedded in the DNA of the human creature. So the will wills what the will wills. All it can do is will what is evil. The gospel is good. Therefore, by definition, the will cannot will the teaching of the gospel. And so to change the situation, 
it's outside of the powers of the will, which always wills what is wicked, to do an about-face. It can't. It's not in its wheelhouse. It just doesn't even know what that is. It is freely willing to will what is wicked. So it does require the Holy Spirit, just like you were saying. It needs a force from the outside. This is the wonderful extra nos stuff of Lutheran theology. But this, and going to that, this is why God sends a preacher. Exactly. Because no one can hear if there's no preacher and the Spirit can't be given without the Word. And so, as a result of that law gospel preaching that is done, the will then does what? The will is changed. Recognizing his sinfulness, repenting, receiving forgiveness. I mean, all of these are coming to you from the outside. I guess what's deceptive about it, when you go back and analyze it, you think that it originated with you. It did not originate with you. Right, and it's very easy to think that, isn't it? Because the way that you experience it, and we talked about this before, Jesus doesn't believe for you, and the Holy Spirit doesn't believe for you. You actually believe. That actually comes out of your converted will. Your will actually assents to what the gospel gives. The problem is that the way it got there was not from its own wickedness. That's impossible. It got there only by the external work of the Holy Spirit. Extra nose. Extra nose. It's kind of like a pinball. Uh, you start, you roll a pinball, and if it's got a clear path, it just keeps going in the same direction. But as soon as it hits one of those bumpers, it gets sent back in the other direction. That's exactly what the confrontation of the wicked will with the Holy Spirit is like. The Holy Spirit sends it in the different direction. So then as a result of that person's baptism, where there is a new man, this also, this new man, the will is changed as well. That is correct, in the new man. And so the, the confessions actually address this. It says this, when after the Holy Spirit has worked and accomplished this, in fact, I'm going to back up since you were talking about the uh, the sacraments. Dr. Luther has written that a person's will in his conversion is purely passive, that it is, it, it does nothing at all. So it's the pinball going in the one direction. This is to be understood with respect to divine grace in the kindling of the new movements. That is, when God's Spirit, through the heard word or the use of the holy sacraments, lays hold of a person's will and works in him the new birth and conversion. So that's the conversion of the will. That's sending the will in the other direction. That's done through God's word and sacraments. Then he goes on. When after the Holy Spirit has worked and accomplished this, and a person's will has been changed and renewed by his divine power and working alone, then the new will of that person is an instrument and organ of God the Holy Spirit. So that person not only accepts grace, but he also cooperates with the Holy Spirit in the works that follow. And that cooperation, as we've talked before, that's that synergism. It's not monergism. It's you're cooperating now with the Holy Spirit as a result of a renewed will. That's correct. So when you do a work of love for your neighbor as a Christian, that's the Holy Spirit at work in you and your will working right along with the Holy Spirit to do that good work because it is a work pleasing to God and one that serves your neighbor. That's the new man. And this is such a beautiful description here of the gospel as opposed to just believing the sales pitch and buying the Electrolux. It really is. It's all gift. 
And, you know, on this, on this topic that we're talking about, you know, one of the things that we've hit many, many times is the kind of gospel in the rearview mirror way in which uh, evangelicals deal with coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. And the rest of their time is entirely this, this thing spent on good works, right? And so you rarely hear the pure gospel proclaimed from a, an evangelical pulpit. Well, it is true that the Holy Spirit converts the will, but it's also true that a wicked will remains because you still still have original sin in you. So let me read to you another thing that the Lutherans reject, and, and this will speak to modern evangelicalism. Some have taught that a person, after he's been born again, can perfectly observe and completely fulfill God's law, and that this fulfilling is our righteousness before God, by which we merit eternal life. Now, this is a rejected teaching of the Lutherans. It's taught very well in, uh, to some degree, I guess, in Roman Catholicism. But I do get the impression that once you're on Team Jesus in the evangelical world, um, your salvation really depends upon the good that you do after that. I might, I might be wrong. I don't know. I kind of look at the very next paragraph as being more about the peeps on Team Jesus. Go ahead and read that. It reads, we also reject and condemn the error of the enthusiasts. Now, we better stop just to make sure. What are they talking about there? Well, the enthusiasts, uh, the Germans called them Schwärmer. Uh, the enthusiasts are people who, as Luther said, swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all. They think that uh, God is inside of them. And so kind of whatever they do and say is is God doing and saying it. And that German word, schwammer, as you just said, I mean, this is like the uh, the buzzing of the gnats uh, that you're just uh, wanting to swat away, right? Right. So it says that they imagine that God, without means, without the hearing of God's word, and also without the use of the holy sacraments, draws people to himself and enlightens, justifies, and saves them. I mean, this is evangelical thought right here. That, to me, is the definition of most evangelicals. Modern evangelicalism, Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. I think I want to press that a little bit further, and and I'm I'm with you 100%. I I think um, without even saying it, they're admitting it, that the lack of preaching of the gospel on a regular basis— really betrays a perspective that says, look, I've got sin behind me now. Don't need it. I need to I need to have a better marriage though. Or I need to balance my budget. Or I need to have a better friend. Or I need to be in a small group. Sure. I mean we just took up right there. Those topics alone, we took up like a quarter of the year's worth of sermons <laughs> in an evangelical yeah, church. Yeah. All of those fail to recognize, I think, the the residual fallen nature of a human being in this regard what do i need on sunday morning when i show up well am i still in my flesh yep okay Uh, have i still committed sins yep okay do my sins make me hate god's law and hate even even to the point of thinking that god has really done me in here by consigning me to this life where i cannot please him yep ergo i could do a much better job at this god thing than than god is Right, but I'm thinking of like getting to the point of despair. What do oh, I yeah. what do I need? I need to hear the gospel. Oh yeah, you need yeah. to hear you need to hear that your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. And I am not on a I am not and any Christian can testify to this. I am not on a 
45 degree angle trajectory uh, from my baptism to heaven. No, you're in a washing machine. Exactly. Just around and around and around a roller coaster. It's that's the life that we live. But you have the word of God. You have his forgiveness preached into your ears, extra nose all the time. You have the very body and the blood. And I know this because I do it for you. You have the very body and blood of Christ placed in your mouth. This is the food of immortality given to you. You've been baptized. Every time you make the sign of the cross, you're remembering your baptism. I mean, you have all of the gifts that God has ordained for you to have to take you to life eternal. Correct. That's what I need. But a church body that refuses to do that is operating with a false premise. And the false premise is, look, I got saved back there, and my trajectory is just from sanctification unto sanctification. It's like this. Some teach that in conversion and regeneration, God entirely exterminates the substance and essence of the old Adam, and especially the rational soul. They say that in conversion and regeneration, he creates a new essence of the soul out of nothing. And so, like, I can do no wrong. And I think that's that's got to, I mean, that's got to be alive and well in the mind, at least of the preachers who are preaching the way they're preaching, that, look, these folks are fine. They, they got Jesus in the back pocket, and uh, we're just, all we're going to talk about is how to live a ever more sanctified life. Sure, we're just going to talk even more about uh, you finding your purpose. Right, which is a made-up sort of sanctification. Yeah, so the will is cooperative after conversion. There's no question, but Wait. it's at war. Okay, good. What is the will like before conversion? The will wills what the will wills. And so it wants wickedness. It wants rebellion. And so this is what the will wills. After conversion, you're saying then that the will then cooperates with the, with the Holy Spirit. But is this, is, is this where Luther talked about how uh, his will is like a, an ass sitting down, like a, a donkey sitting down? Where he's like, you know, come on, Will, just fighting him the whole way. Sure. And Paul talks about this, too, in Romans 7, doesn't he? The good that I would, that do I not do, and the evil that I would not, that do I do. Uh, So Paul's talking about these two wills inside of him, the regenerate will and the old will of the old dead nature that hates God. And that war is constantly going on inside of a human being after conversion. Prior to conversion, there's no war. Right. It's just the will willing what the will wills. So, obviously, this was, I mean, for the Lutheran reformers, not just Luther himself, but this was a huge topic. This was a huge doctrine that that had to be elaborated on. I mean, Luther wrote the classic bondage of, of the will, which was what? Uh, in response to Erasmus's uh, freedom of the will, correct, correct? Correct, yeah. 1526, this goes back a long way. So Erasmus was arguing what? Was he more in the semi-Pelagian? Erasmus or? was in the semi-Pelagian mm-hmm. mode. And, and Erasmus basically said um, that this was Erasmus's contention. If God had given, God would not be the kind of God who's so unjust as to give commandments that cannot be fulfilled 
And so if he says, which is ridiculous, I mean, just just between you and me, tell us why. Because God gives us stuff to do all the time that we can't do. Right. We ex- we know this by experience for sure, right? But he's deducing that God would never do this because that would make God an unjust God. And oh. so, so this is the semi-Pelagian position, and he says God reveals to us what pleases him. And leaves it in our power to assent or not to assent to doing those things. And then we, you know, start off, uh, hopefully, uh, by, you know, following the Ten Commandments and living up to the evangelical precepts and all this sort of stuff. What he does along the way is he ignores the clear testimony of the scriptures, right? Uh, Romans 3.19, that the law is given to stopper up all mouths. They have no excuse before the law. And that the law was given simply to expose and increase sin. So in other words, he, he, he reads scripture apart from scripture, and he doesn't get the full force of what God's revelation in the law is. So Luther then wrote a response to Erasmus, who, if I'm not mistaken, I mean, he respected Erasmus a lot, looked up to him. He had. And so uh, up until that point, or... Yeah, up until that point, there were growing. There was just growing tension between these two, um, and Erasmus actually was baiting Luther. Uh, he was put up to this by um, by the Roman Catholics, and they they were trying to get Luther to trip all over himself uh, and show his cards on this matter. And Luther actually did. He didn't trip over himself, but he really showed his cards. And he wrote Bondage of the Will, uh, which. I mean, I, I will be the first one to confess. I mean, I drug my eyes across every word on that in that book. That was that was dense for me. That was heavy uh, trudging. I would suggest that nobody listening to this go pull off their shelf, Bondage of the Will. That, that their is, shelf? Yeah. You mean <laughs> go, <laughs> the library? You go to order it, yeah. It is a very difficult book. It's theologically dense. It's philosophically dense. It's it's full of scriptures. You, you have to understand quite a bit of uh, the medieval background to understand the way that Luther's making his argument uh, in response to Erasmus. So it's not a good place to start. Really, the formula of Concord is a wonderful place to start with just the, the clear, basic testimony of scripture that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. But if I'm not mistaken, I guess close to Luther's death, he said something to the extent of everything that I've written thus far is hay, with the exception of, I believe, both of his catechisms, the catechisms and bondage, bondage of, of the, the will. will. Yep, that he it, it was a very treasured thing for him because he got it right. He really did, and this has to be the beginning premise of every Lutheran preacher that the wills of the people that we are talking to are dead in trespasses and sins. They're in bondage. They're uh, natural men who cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. And that it is not in our power to wake the dead, to, to unchain the chains, and to change a natural man into a spiritual man. There's only one tool for it, and it's the gospel. Wherever the gospel is at work, there it's going it, it, to wake the dead. It's going to sever the chains and it's going to convert and really kill the natural man and bring the spiritual man to life. Yeah, that's exactly what law and gospel preaching does, right? I mean, it it kills and it makes alive. 
It kills by the letter of the law. It makes alive by gospel promises. And so this is an, you know, you, you were talking about uh, this along the way, um, how just a little degree of difference can just sort of set everything off in the wrong direction. So maybe you've got sort of a healthy teaching on original sin, but you still admit a little bit of ability for a man to make a decision for Christ, uh, or maybe even a big uh, ability for him to make a decision for Christ. That is going to mess with your preaching in a big way, and it's going to it's going to remove you from the proclamation that the Lord has given his pastors to proclaim. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I mean, this is the constant refrain of all of the apostles and of John the Baptist and of all of the prophets. It's always law and gospel. There is never not law and gospel. There's never a pep talk. There's never a discern your purpose talk. There's never a get in a small group talk. What? No. How do you have church without these things? <laughs> it is always it is always law and gospel. Always. All right. So what is the next article in the epitome? The next article has to do uh, with a wonderful answer um, to, to the problem of the, the bound will. So the bound will cannot achieve the righteousness that avails before God. Why? Because the will wills what the will wills, and the evil will wills only evil. So the question then is, how do we get out of this mire? And it's the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, which we will take up next time. And it comes to you via the sacraments. Via the sacraments and the word. So just to put an end on this, and we'll pick it up next time, in Acts chapter 2, God sends a preacher who preaches law, so much so that the people say, what shall we do to be saved? Right. So that's really article three. I mean, what what do we do? Where's the answer? We've got original sin that we're dealing with, or not that we're dealing with, but that we've been, uh, you know, that is, how would you say, bequeathed to us? Right, <laughs> right. We, we've got this original sin, and then as a result of that original sin, it has limited our wills. I mean, the person needs to say at this point, I'm screwed. I'm totally screwed. I got no options here, Jack. None. Yes. Yeah. Right. They cannot gain the righteousness demanded by God. Uh, that's what they realize. Uh, and this goes back to the to what the we were talking about just a little bit earlier. I don't want to drag this out too long. Um, but the things that um, that the human will can will. Can it will to be right with God? Yes, it can. The problem is it cannot muster up the power to do it. And that has to come from the outside. Well, we'll talk about that next time. Thank you very much, Pastor Russ. Thank you, Pastor Kearns. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kearns. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.